This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with a foresight have given me that middle name? Comes in handy sometimes. people have been asking about the music that's uh, that's cool it's basically just uh me messing around with garage band drum loops and a free uh sample loop off of a website called lander and a few other things it's funny when i well it's probably not funny to you but when i first started this i said to myself i'm not messing with any music because i know i'll spend all my time doing that and next thing i know i'm dragging my son's midi equipment and keyboards out and listening to music online and yes i spend more time on the music than the rest of the stuff but uh, it's cool i i didn't realize till about the second episode or so that the reason i like the guitar loop is because it reminds me of kings of leon so i'm a big kol fan so i feel cool about that anyhow this has nothing to do with the podcast welcome my name is jonathan i'm glad that you're with us today this is what uh this is like episode number four i think I'm a writer. I uh, got a few books out on Amazon. Um, I help my son lead a nonprofit in Haiti called LQVE.org that I hope you'll check out sometime. I'm also the lead follower of a local church. And I've put together this podcast as well as doing some writing um, to begin to unpack how it is I'm arriving at some of the places that I've been arriving at with respect to theology and life and philosophy and love and reading scripture and what I think is healthier and better, certainly different ways than I used to. And in particular, um, I'm talking about all this in the context of how it is now that I'm viewing LGBTQ plus human beings. So lots of folks have been trying to figure out how it is that I've been connecting the dots and have gone from kind of where I used to be to where I am now. Though I'd like to say, I don't think I ever was really militant against LGBTQ plus, but certainly the tradition that I was a part of um, has those kinds of tendencies. And so this is an, an effort to kind of put a bunch of different episodes and different thoughts together to help people who really want to know how it is that um, I'm getting there. Now, I've, I've realized that the truth is a lot of folks, and I don't want to be mean, but a lot of folks don't necessarily really want to know. They, they like to get together with me um, with the idea that they're going to you know check in on me, but as soon as we sit down, I've recognized that really all they want to do is tell me what they think. I find that very interesting how quick Christians are to define themselves based on how they are different than other people. And I'm culpable in this too, so I'm not trying to point fingers. Well, I am pointing fingers, but I recognize, you know, I'm I'm a hypocrite, so I'm a part of it too. But isn't that interesting? Why do we so often have to define ourselves based on what the other person thinks? That's just um, obviously us starting from a a fear perspective rather than a love perspective, which is the antithesis of who I've come to know that God is, in particular through His Son, Jesus. 
So part of the reason I'm putting this episode together, and certainly the book that I wrote, was to actually was to help people who actually wanted to learn and wanted to know. And so if you're listening to this, man, this is the challenge um, I lay out for you. Can you actually work through this? Now, I'm not suggesting I have everything right, but given the fact that you know where I came from, which is a more conservative, constrictive theology, if you come from that too, and again, you really want to know, now you know now you have someone who has at least connected a few dots, and you can get some reasonable, intelligent, decent thought about why we would think the things that we think, and so here's your opportunity to work through it. I, now, I know it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I've had some friends who've you know, emailed me and said, the podcast is too long. And to be fair, some of them were probably kidding. But I, I get the sense that for a lot of evangelicals, they're not. That is what they think. Um, and I'm like, seriously, man, you listen, you listen to uh, or watch Netflix episodes that you know may go on all night or all weekend. How can you not listen to a 45-minute podcast? Or have you listened, by the way, to Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson? I mean, their podcasts go on for hours. So... If it feels like it's long, just hit pause, you know, and absorb what you can. Come back up, back, and pick it up at a later, later time, and pick up what you can. So I don't think that's a great excuse that it goes too long. Well, today is part one of two parts about this concept and this idea of scapegoating. Uh, next episode, I'm going to interview a new friend of mine from the RavenFoundation.org. Her name is Lindsay Paris Lopez. But before that, I wanted to unpack a little bit of it myself. And so we get into this really important concept, I think at least, of scapegoating. And um, so I hope you'll enjoy it. If you haven't had opportunity yet, please make sure you follow me either on SoundCloud or iTunes, Google Music Player, Intune, whatever it is that you're listening to this podcast on for whatever reason follows and reviews and stars and subscribing all of that stuff matters uh, just the way humans are it's part of what we're going to talk about in the next couple of episodes the whole imitation piece of us so when other humans see that you actually like this podcast and leave a good review they tend to want to follow it and subscribe to it and like it more too that's just the way it works i'm terrible at asking these kinds of things but if you don't mind uh, and you do like it, go ahead and review it, and that would be super helpful. Uh, there's other information in the show notes about how to uh, catch up with me, and also there'll be information there uh, to give you ideas about websites and books, things that you might want to read more about scapegoating, the stuff we're going to talk about today. So I hope you'll check into that. Okay, about now is the time to cue back up that cool guitar music. Wouldn't it be awesome if Kings of Leon actually listened to this podcast sometime? That would be my goal. If that could ever happen, that that would be the best. <laughs> All right. What I want to talk about today comes by generally by way of a man by the name of René Girard. He's a French anthropologist and a literary critic, really brilliant thinker. And he taught us about imitation. His word for it is mimesis. It's a little bit more nuanced than our normal word of imitation. And we might get into that another time. But 
It's basically how we imitate one another. He's not the first, of course, to talk about this, but he's one of the first to do so in the context of Scripture. And he says that Scripture reveals that our imitating desires, along with Jesus stepping into the inevitable tension that those desires lead us toward, is what Scripture is about. You probably already know this, but humans are social creatures. We are highly social. In fact, it's been demonstrated in lots of different places, and you can look this up online, how solitary confinement is one of the things that can cause severe psychological damage to human beings because we're so social. Being by ourselves for long periods of time will drive us crazy. We're built to be around people, to be influenced by people. We desire what the other person desires. And the other person, they desire what someone else desires. And our entire marketing industry, as best as I can tell, is built upon showing you what other people desire. For example, you see the guy driving the car down a beautiful coastal highway. The guy is cool looking. I mean, he's attractive. He doesn't have to be the most attractive. He just has to be a little bit more attractive than you. And he has to have beard stubble because you've never seen a cool car commercial with a guy in it who doesn't have some nice beard stubble. And there's a lady with him and she's attractive. And her scarf is blowing. It's like in slow motion out of the window as they're driving down the coastal highway. You don't even like scarves, but suddenly on this lady, in this car, in this beautiful day, on this road, you not only desire the car, you want that stinking scarf. And you feel the wind. And subconsciously you think of freedom. And you see them leisurely driving through the beautiful foothills. And you can see all of it because of the drone footage that's giving you the shot from several hundred feet above. Never mind if it's actually you driving. There are no drone shots from above. Your eyes are peeled to the road because you'd be going like five miles an hour because of the hairpin turns or because of being afraid of some squirrel running out on the road or something because that's real life. But this is commercial life. And it's a beautiful picture-perfect day with drone footage and the breakers crashing in onto the shore and two beautiful people driving this car. And they want you to long for the experience that they are having. And as you watch the car in sub-subconscious, part of your body, you want what they have. Then we go to the next commercial. It's the same car company, but they're, they're coming at it from a different angle. And they show you who makes the car. What do they show you? I mean, they show you a bunch of regular people just like you. Little bit less attractive than the people who were driving the car in the first commercial. These people look a little bit more like you. And they're in the factory. They're in the office. They got their kids at home. What are they doing? They're celebrating like 4th of July. They're graduating high school seniors. They have beautiful grandparents just like you. People of all races, from all backgrounds. 
that really care about the car that they make just for you. In fact, they say at some point, in some way during the making of the second commercial, they say that there's a piece of themselves in the car. When you buy the car, you're really buying a piece of them. Notice how Eucharistic it all is. They have given their body to this car. You are partaking of their body when you drive the car. This is just one or two car commercials. Now you add all the other products and all the other purchases that we make, the devices and the programs into our over-commodified culture, add that all into the mix. You have a whole host of people desiring all these things that other people desire. Girard says that this kind of thinking has been going on from the beginning of time. But there's a price with the imitation of others. Namely, that if what we want is scarce, there's only so much to go around. And interestingly, even when it's not as human beings, we're easily duped into a scarcity mentality. And scarcity drives us toward anxiety. In our anxiety, tension grows, and it grows, and it evolves, until we have no other recourse but to go to blows to get into violence with the other person over the thing that we both think that we desire. And this is where Girard says humanity figured out something ingenious. So when we both are escalating in our violence, two different people or two different people groups, and things are getting crazier and crazier and there's more tension, we both turn and suddenly point at another person and we project our violence onto them and we create the scapegoat. Girard says that scapegoating began in order to serve a purpose in ancient civilization. It gave an outlet for all of our violent tension. And it worked so well that people began to adopt it into their way of life. And now this, is, this part is important. We begin at some point to name it sacred. By the way, if you're interested, there's a book that I think in an indirect way, because this isn't the point of the book, at least I don't think, that demonstrates some of the evolution of religion and sacrificing and scapegoating and calling it sacred, but it's written by James Missioner. It's called The Source. Um, but it gives you some, some details if you like a good long read. Anyhow, Sherard says that we named all of the sacred, sacrificial scapegoating. It became the crux of religion, and religion became the crux of the growth of civilization. It gave a way for people to deal with their violence, which is really important. And so violence was justified as long as it was projected onto the scapegoated victim. And in this way, societies were built upon conscious and unconscious victimization. Again, this is important because it worked. We could offload our animosities onto the scapegoating victim and then feel more peace after doing so. Because... That whole scapegoating mechanism was a way to release the tension. Now, of course, the catch is the peace was only short-lived, but uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. And this is the fundamental story of humanity. Girard says the Bible tells a story of humanity, which is anthropology, before it tells the story of God, which is theology. 
Our anthropology is built upon the sacredness of violence and sacrifice. The Bible tells us the story that we're addicted to scapegoating. But the Bible also tells us the story of how to get out of that scapegoating mechanism because Christ stepped into the whole absurdity of the system as a victim to reveal its ridiculousness and its weakness. He comes to us as a friend of sinners, one who was cursed, poor, without much to offer. He, he comes, to one, comes to us as one who was excluded, kicked out. Now, we thought it was for his sins, as the prophet Isaiah said, but it turns out it wasn't. It was actually for our sins. And the story shows us that the victim is innocent. The scapegoating has no power other than to keep violence into play. God's not into sacrifice. He's into mercy. God's not into punishing. He's into love. He's not into death. He's into life. Christianity begins the moment when humanity realizes God's no longer into scapegoating. He never was. God is into love for everyone, including those we've scapegoated, and especially including those we've scapegoated. Christianity, in other words, frees us from the logic of what we have made sacred. Christianity frees us from our victimary mechanism. Ironically, the church never really caught how revolutionary this was. Now, I should say the early church, by that I mean the first couple hundred years, probably did. And a part of my journey has been to reconnect to some of the way the early Christians lived. But about the time of Constantine, when the church got in bed, so to speak, with government, this freeing movement of God that Jesus gives evidence of is turned into a very binding, constrictive movement. And basically, we've never recovered, I don't think, from um, what happened when when Constantine made Christianity, quote-unquote, the state religion. And so, I'm, I'm fast-forwarding, fast-forwarding through a lot of history, but you know, things got messy and grew and evolved. And then you have a guy like Anselm who was a brilliant thinker of his day and said some good things, but he turned atonement theology, I don't know that he turned it specifically, but he introduced some ideas that made the idea of atonement, this whole thing of, you know, us being indebted to God and Jesus had to pay God off, so to speak. Uh, The Reformation in the 1500s, actually makes everything, I think, in this sense, worse. Now, the Reformation needed to have happened for sure, but the Protestants didn't reform people far enough. It's easy for me to say, by the way, looking backwards, I would have probably done the same thing if I was there. But the point is to learn from it. And so, instead of reforming the violent tendencies of religion, the Reformers only wound up increasing it And then again, I'm fast-forwarding. You have the religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries, out of which, of course, people wanted 
some kind of an enlightenment to get them away from so much violence. You have American Christianity, which is birthed out of all of this and, and is is marked by you know, justification and salvation only coming to us because of the bloodshed of Jesus uh, for God. And so the very thing that Jesus came to free us from, the idea that God needs a scapegoat, that God needs victims, that God needs bloodshed, is the very thing that we turned around and used to tell ourselves even more so that, that this is what God needed. And we created these entire theologies to back up this whole thinking. Now, I stop short of saying it's all ridiculous because there are so many good things that have come from Christianity, so many beautiful things that I would be remiss to overlook that have come from really well-intended people So I'm not suggesting the whole thing needs to be thrown away. What I am suggesting is that our idea of a sacrificial God needs to be changed. And if it is, a bunch of other stuff changes. Because how we think of God is always how we wind up thinking of others. And how we think of others is how we think of God. Anthropology and theology are forever intertwined in that way. And I'm oversimplifying a bit here to save time, but driven by our penchant for scapegoating and then our misguided thinking regarding scarcity, you know, all of this grows until like the 1700s. Our most famous preachers are preaching sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God, which our kids actually still study. I was shocked to find this out a couple of years ago when my youngest was still in high school. We still study this uh, in English class. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, though a lot of us would argue at this point, in retrospect, we realize it was really God in the hands of angry sinners. That's how Christianity was introduced, for the most part, into our country. You mix this in with the colonialism that was taking place, uh, the manifest destiny, uh, purging the continent of the Native Americans, I mean, on and on and on. And we have grown this system of sacrificial Christianity over the years to the point now, well, what are Christians known for? They're known for basically angry, being angry and petty and condemning, for exclusive, for in-out thinking, for creating barriers so that people wind up going to hell. Why is this? I think it's because, though I fast-forwarded through a whole bunch of stuff, I think it's because our theology has never really dealt with our anthropology. Our anthropology, as Gerard discovered, owes its existence to sacrificing, to the scapegoat. If our theology is non-sacrificial love, we don't have to do anything to get God to love us. God just loves us because God's love. We don't have to change. And we don't And we don't have to demand that others change. We can recognize our violent tendency, confess, repent, and instead of projecting it onto others, internalize it and let it dissipate. We can confess, driven by scarcity, we have tended to scapegoat our anxieties onto others. Well, I took all of this thinking into my thoughts about LGBTQ plus human beings. Because the more I learned about mimetic theory and scapegoating and the more I read about this, basically I went, time out, wait a minute. 
I've seen all this kind of behavior before in my own life. Now, obviously, you know, I saw it in violence and wars and battles and those kinds of things. But I really saw it also in the church. I remember when I was little, for example, hearing the preacher preach against divorce specifically and divorced people until, well, until a lot of people in the church started getting divorced. And then at some point, the preacher figured out a way to give grace to divorced people. And and I would argue that the same kind of thing has happened with all the quote-unquote sins of the past. And so I began to kind of connect the dots, and I said, wait a minute, who are we scapegoating now? Oh, that's pretty obvious. It's the LGBTQ plus crowd. Oh my gosh, we're doing it all over again. We're always into sacrificing. We're the religious people. We're the ones who killed Jesus. I was the one who killed Jesus, and this is wrong. The cross represents the end of all the sacrificing in God's name, not the beginning. God is love. The cross represents the end of all the sacred victimizing in God's name. It's not the beginning. God is love. The cross represents the end of religion, not the beginning. Jesus didn't die because God required him to do so. Jesus died to reveal God's heart. God is love. Are there behaviors we need to work on and talk about and discuss? Yes, of course. Are there sexual behaviors we need to work on and talk about and discuss? Yes, obviously. But that's just it. We need to discuss it, to dialogue, to to talk with our young people about choices and consequences, to talk with them a lot about power and how much power plays into our sexuality. We just need to adapt and adopt, not condemn. Most of American Christianity cannot do this. Why? Because they're still into sacrificing. They're still into sacrificing. They're still into scapegoating. They're just like the religious fathers of the past who killed Jesus. They want to obey God through sacrifice, but it's not how God works. I, I would imagine, none of us really know, we, we tend to read back into the gospel stories and we project all this stuff back onto the religious leaders like they were such punks and such losers and they were such hypocrites. And, and they were, but we all have done the same kinds of things. I've done the same kinds of things. The religious people were the ones who killed God. And I think some of them were probably well-intended. They just thought it was through sacrifice. It turns out that's not how God works. God doesn't need to be appeased. We do. Scapegoating is about us, not God. Jesus says, in my paraphrase, you got to be willing to be the one scapegoated. You have to be willing to partake of my way. He goes on further to say, of my body, of my blood. Notice how Eucharistic it all is. He's given his body. To be the people of love, we must, we must participate in his way. We must take his body. That's the way of Jesus. It's peace that works. And it's peace that works in the short run, as well as the long run. It's everlasting peace. It is, my friend, the way of love. And so to all my LGBTQ plus friends, those that I ha- now have and those that I will get to know in the future, really, I just want to offer an apology and I want to confess 
that driven by my need to scapegoat that I've excluded you in the past, and I no longer want to participate in that. Do you have problems? Yeah, you do. Do I, as a heterosexual, have problems? Yes, I do. But God loves the whole thing, and He's working to make all of it new and better as we give way to His way of love. And so now, as I get ready to close, I want to end by referencing a line from the aforementioned book, The Source. In it, there's a line from a wife who's observing a husband who's been involved in sexual perversion and sacrifice and, you know, misdirected thinking. And at one point in there, she watches her husband and she thinks to herself, if he had had a better God, he would have been a better man. And I think about Christians for all these centuries. Again, lots of good stuff has happened, but there's been a lot of terrible stuff. If we had only had a better God, we would have been better people. But actually, we've had a better God all along. It's time to recognize that. All right, thanks for being with us today. Make sure you connect this episode with the next one, which is my interview with Lindsay Paris Lopez as we talk more about scapegoating, mimetic theory, desires, uh, scarcity, and those kinds of things. If you haven't had opportunity yet, feel free to follow me here on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Give me some reviews. Uh, follow me online. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? We've been talking about scarcity and desire And here I am at the end of the podcast, driven by scarcity, asking you to follow my stuff. So that just proves I am a hypocrite. Uh, There you go. Well, I hope you have a great week. Thanks so much for being a part of the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. I dare you to live meaningful lives, lives that aren't predicated upon needing to project our fears onto others, knowing that God's given us everything we need. (laughs) 